Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the 2020 Election Edition. We are here to take you from election to inauguration, examining the issues through the lens of history. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. My name is Matt Shockey. Sitting across from me is, as always, Mr. Hudson. I like to call Dr. Hudson. We are but I'm not. And you're not, but it's it's fun to call you Dr. Hudson. Um, we are coming up, Dr. Hudson, on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, it is March 17th, the Wednesday. Actually, it'll be this week, right? Yeah. yeah it's going to be this week. So uh, in honor of that, I recognize the beer that is in front of me. Uh, do you want to give us a little bit? Um... Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's a Guinness. So, you know, no surprise there on St. Patty's. Uh, near St. Patty's, you have a Guinness. This is the cans that are, uh, you know, have nitrogen in them. So when you open them up, it shoots through, makes it nice and smooth. Okay. So let's let's. Uh, it's a very taut can. Yeah. Let me hear yours first. Oh, it's bubbling. Oh yeah. It bubbles oh. a little after the foam comes out the top. Oh. And then okay. I do think it affects the uh, smoothness of the beer. I do like a Guinness. It does. It is a nice, smooth beer. People who look at have never tried Guinness see the really dark color of, of Guinness, and they think that's going to be make it. It's like going to be an overpowering taste. It's going to be real bitter. It's good, and it's not. No, it's not. I, I think it's a good breakfast beer. It is, you know, and uh, I, I, I don't know if you've done this, but you know, if you go Philly or Pittsburgh, and even Shanks and Marietta, where we've been before, um, they a lot of times will serve breakfast in the bars. Okay, and um, you know, of course, you drink a, a Guinness, and I guess the classic breakfast dish with a Guinness would be bangers and mash. Okay, which is you know sausage and potatoes, of course, and and they put the mushy peas in too. So if you're looking forward to a day of drinking, you're probably it's probably not going to be a real healthy day for you. <laughs> you, can get, you can get the mushy peas in that bangers and mash, and you'll be all set. How about some haggis? Well, that's Scottish. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, know, you right. don't want to confuse your Celts. Th- thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you for. I don't want to get any hate mail on that. Yeah. All right. So last week, I think that'd be appropriation if the Irish did haggis. It would be. I, I know. The reason I said haggis, I just happened to watch a special on how they make haggis and the importation of haggis, and oh. I don't know why I watched that, but I did. But anyway, so last week we did a first part on uh, a man named Sales Swales. I'm sorry, Swales. Yep. Stephen um, Atkins Swales. Yes, and I forgot his rank. He was a captain. No, he uh, he be was the first commissioned combat off line officer, okay. uh, uh, African American line officer ever, and it was in the Civil War. He was a second lieutenant, and then after the second time he was shot, he got promoted to first lieutenant. Lieutenant, that's right. And we we were making the sort of 
morbid joke of what it takes to for the african-american to get to first lieutenant <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. as compared to what somebody else would take to get first lieutenant before we go there though i have a, i i want to touch a, upon a little bit of co- what's happening contemporary uh, in contemporary news and i this isn't about mr potato head it is not about mr okay. potato head um but it's not something I even I even talked before the podcast. I wanted to catch you completely off guard here mm. and to get some honest opinion before you get a chance to think about it. And it is about Dr. Seuss. Okay. All right. Um, and if you, I'm sure you are aware that Dr. Seuss Enterprises has decided to discontinue or, or take out of print six Dr. Seuss books. Right. Uh, based on imagery in the Dr. Seuss books. Right. Okay. So I have a little quiz for you before we talk about that. Okay. Um, I have the six Dr. Seuss books names in front of me. Okay. And I'm going to read two names to you. Yeah. And you have to tell me which one is a real Dr. Seuss book. (laughs) Okay. I probably can't. All right. So the first book under fire, is it Doggone Days of Summer or The Cat's Quizzer? The Cat's Quizzer. That is correct. Ding, ding, ding. You got that one right. The next one. Is it On Beyond Zebra or The Elephant Ballet? On Beyond Zebra. You are two for two. The next one. Dinner, Dingbats, and Doorknobs or Scrambled Eggs Super? Scrambled Eggs Super. You are three for three. See, I think I read an article about this okay. a week or two ago, but I have a good memory for McElligot's Pool or McSheraton's Shower? McElligot's Pool. All right. Ding, ding. Four for four. <laughs> and we're not going to do the very last one because I think kind of everyone knows that one. If I ran a zoo or... If I got lost at the zoo. Oh, that's a tough one because of the zoo thing. Yeah. If I ran a zoo? It is. You are five for five. Very good, Hudson. The one we didn't do is, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street, is actually Dr. Seuss's very first book uh, published in 1937. Uh, And the reason why I did that is I think most people who are even upset about this can't name the six books that Dr. Seuss wrote that were right. going to be discontinued. They're not as popular books. No, yeah. there's, there's, I, I, I should have looked up the total number of books Dr. Seuss has written, children's books. Um, but certainly, people, I, I would argue, people are getting upset and they can't even name the books. But you surprised me. I thought I'd get you on a few of those. Yeah, I just, you know, I read an article on my, I and, still have a, a, a good memory for right. written words. So, what do you think? Dr. Seuss. Don't ask me what I did yesterday. <laughs> is this cancel culture? Or is this a reasonable thing for a corporation to do in as time passes? Well, you know, I think a lot of people by now, if they've read a little about, he, he, you know, he drew some propaganda uh, cartoons in, in World War II, and they had uh, caricatures, uh, particularly of of Asian Japanese people. And of course, he's trying to make them look bad in the enemy, and you know, dehumanize them to some extent. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much that influenced any of his, his later work, but he did uh, draw some un- what could be considered, well, I would certainly consider unflattering uh, racial stereotypes. So I don't have any problems. Now, there's other problems um, that I have with cancel culture and Dr. Seuss. I think Cat in the Hat has been called out because of minstrelsy like he 
Oh, there's a minstrel seat in there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, And, and like, I don't even know that. I don't know if that would be obvious. Cat in a Hat's been around a long time. I don't know if anybody would reading that becomes more prejudiced. In fact, (laughs) I have a hard time. You know, I read Cat in a Hat to my kids, and I didn't notice any difference between uh, the way they treated others of people of color or after I read Cat in the Hat to them. But, I, you know, what's wrong with these ones that have obvious... And see, that's it. It's it's who draw the line and where you draw the line. Right. And, you know, in, in cancel culture, there is a mob out there, especially on Twitter, and they want to draw the line. They want to draw the line for you, mm-hmm. you know. And that's bad. And, and some of them absolutely don't believe in free speech. Uh, however, I don't think those books belong in the school library. Do you? The ones with the unflattering racial stereotypes? I, I'm okay with people saying, or, or you know, the corporation that runs it. Um, that, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna print those books, and and you know, I'm okay with the school library. I think didn't it start out? Luden, Virginia was gonna take some of these same books out of there. Mm. I'm okay with that. How about you? I'm okay with it, too. Um, you know, Dr. Seuss would have been 117 years old today. Uh, not today, but this year. Okay. So he has been around a long time, and he would have been a man of his time. And if you look at his um, early cartoons, as you point out, there's a great book called Dr. Seuss Goes to War. And you'll see a lot of his cartoons. And there's huge racial, not even overtone, just blatantly right. yeah, racist yeah. against Japanese. Um, some of his early advertising campaigns i had to look this up i didn't know this uh flit uh bug spray um is really racist uh with black caricatures um but i don't think dr seuss as he aged i think he evolved as a person um and i think it's appropriate that new morals and values spring up and we may look back at something that might have been innocent at the time it was written um, or it, looked at it because it didn't violate the norms of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Seuss, even himself in his lifetime, changed some of his imagery. Um, yeah, right. I heard that. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Jap- Chinese character uh, was yellow. They decided not to make it yellow anymore because that was a little bit too over the top. And now, 20, 30 years later, we look at that whole image in itself and say, well, maybe that's too much. I do agree with you, though, that no one's reading Dr. Seuss and going out and joining the clan. Like, you know, there's no connection there. Um, but I do think it's appropriate to reevaluate things. And this is not cancel culture. This is a Dr. Seuss Enterprises making a decision on its own with experts. I mean, this is part of the family that's doing this. So I think this is appropriate. Um, I, think bo- I think both sides are sort of blowing it out of proportion. I think it's a mild turn to say, look, there's so, much, there's so many other things that we could point to. Um, in researching this just a little bit, you, we all know the very popular um, Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people think that that book was written in 1954, and most people think that was Dr. Seuss's apology for all his propaganda for the Japanese war. Um, he dedicates that book in, in the book to his great friend, and I'm going to butcher this name, Mitsugui Nakamura of Kyoto, Japan. Uh, he was a professor um, in Japan that Dr. Seuss traveled after the war. And, and most people think Horton, here's a who, is his apology 
for that. Well, that's interesting. Well, that's, uh, you know, and that's one thing that people have to, it, when you talk about new things coming along. Well, when you have posts that are kind of out there forever now, uh, whether they're Twitter posts or something you put on Facebook, um, then people can go back and they can say, well, you know, when you were in high school or junior high, use racial slurs and that's been done and people you know they call you out for that and to me is and if somebody's punished for that and i and i don't approve of ever using racial slurs i should go without saying but are you really going to punish somebody who is let's say 13 and they did something and now i'm not going to let them into a particular college or now i'm going to call them out and go, you know, you used to be this way. And, you know, we taught high school. <laughs> I taught forever. You wait, I saw kids change. I saw kids, kids change from the time they're freshmen to seniors. And I just don't, I think that's another bad thing about cancel. It's like if you ever harbored a sexist thought, ever harbored a racist thought, ever harbored a transgendered thought, you know, you can go on and on, ever harbored, and you express that in any way whatsoever, you are now forever a bad person. And I'll just go on, and and, and maybe there are a few people who, who think that they've always been pure in every regard, but you haven't been. Um, you know, you're, you're mistaken. You're a fallible human being, and you will make mistakes. And something you did 20 years ago... Uh, shouldn't be held against you. Of course, if you've never changed your mind in 20 years, and this goes for everybody who is now so certain about what, if you don't change your mind in 20 years, there's probably something wrong with you. You know, like William Blake said, a man who won't change his mind is, is uh, breeds reptiles of the mind. Well, yeah. And, yeah, so, and I believe that. All right. So let's uh, we'll leave it there. I think that's a good place to leave that discussion. I agree with you 100% on that aspect of cancel culture and that we need to give room, pe- a place for people to grow, evolve, and change. Uh, <clears throat> which brings us to um, Lieutenant Swales in post-Civil War. And I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about the impact of the Civil War itself. Uh, a lot of times, well, most times, we talk about the Civil War and then we go right into Reconstruction, which is a complex topic, to be sure. And Reconstruction is also one of those things that we say history never changes. And that's true that the facts of history never change, but our interpretation of history changes quite a bit. And over the last 70 years to a century, actually, our view of, of Reconstruction has changed dramatically. So, But I think one thing we we step over is the impact of the war. And I'd like to take a few minutes just to talk about the impact of the war, especially in the South, and how unbelievably devastating the war itself was. I think it will explain a lot about the South's reaction after the Civil War. I think it'll explain, excuse me, a lot about even today's Southerners' preoccupation with the war uh, that many Northerners simply don't have and that the South does. So let's start with just this, this, this sheer size of death in the Civil War. Um, the deaths, they're estimating anywhere from 650,000 to 850,000. 
And that number is changing, by the way. They started doing some more research a couple years ago. Uh, the number used to always stand about 600,000 or so. Mm -hmm. And they think they undershot that. Uh, they were looking, they started doing some research on census data from 1860 to 1870, and they're readjusting that number. As high as 850,000, most people are settling around 750,000, about to that. But to give you an idea how big that is, that's 2.5% of the population that's going to die for the whole United States. If it were the population, 30 some million. A total population was 31 million. 31 million. So that, if that were today, if we were to have the Civil War today, you'd be looking at a death total of seven, in the same ratio. Seven million people would die today oh, in a wow. Civil War. Yeah. So seven million dead in a war is would have been catastrophic in right. today's numbers. So the. <clears throat> But to put that in perspective, what was it about four hundred thousand in World War Two? Something Americans, yes, right? And that was in nineteen forties. Yeah, where, you know. So it, it is a so, but that number even in itself, I think, hides a fa some truth, some facts that the population wasn't split e split evenly between the North and the South. Right. Right. So the North held a population of about twenty two million. The South had a population of nine million. Right. So, but even of that nine million. Or is truth hidden? 5.5 million of that is white. 3.5 million is slaves. Well, slaves didn't fight in the war. Not for the South. Not for the South, right? right? So of the South, 5.5 million white people are going to have to shoulder the burden for the war. But right. not all 5.5 million people are going to have to shoulder the burden of the war because half of them are women. Right. So now <clears throat> you're getting down to... Two, just a little over 2 million men. But not all those men are going to shoulder the responsibility for the war because a lot of those people, men, aren't able to fight because of age or disabilities. Right. They could have been too young or too old. So really what you're looking at at this point is about half of that number. 1.1 million men will have served in the uh, Confederate Army. All right. Um, the most under command at any one time, I think was about 400,000 or 500,000, but a total of 1.1 million. Of that 1.1 million, 50% will be killed or wounded in the war. That's devastating. About oh, yeah. And, and the way they served, a lot of people, you know, when they were recruited, it, uh, they were recruited, the, the majority of the armies on both sides were governors and states providing soldiers for the cause. And so a lot of these guys signed up and they would be in, you know, pick something like the first Minnesota volunteers if, if you're from the north. They're from the same area. Right. So when these guys, when, when these people are in battle and there's a big battle, you might have virtually every young man from a town, because these are very small towns right. so they're coming from, is gone. Or a lot of them are gone and some will come back without an arm or a leg. It, it, the, the Civil War is a gothic tragedy. I mean, you look at those pictures, of, you know, <laughs> you don't look at the, like you said, the aftermath, look at what the, it's, it's god awful. Right. War, yeah. And so if you look at that one point, so 26%, one in four men who served in the Confederacy are going to die. Um, 13% are going or to be, be wounded, right? No, 50% killed or wounded. Oh, okay. Um, 
uh, about half will 26% are going to be uh, killed and other other 25% will be wounded. Um, now, be, you think that it'd be more wounded than dead, but you have to remember that more people died of disease. Right. So that's why you get those numbers the way they are. So and you and, also have to remember what medicine was like, and they didn't have germ theory and instruments to amputate weren't sterilized. Right. They were simply wiping them off on their aprons yeah. and going to the next one. Uh, so from the southern perspective, the war is absolute. It encompasses everything about your life. I once heard a historian say that the North fought the war with one arm tied behind its back that it never fully put its full weight into the war. It was still building railroads. It was still governing. Life, if you weren't involved in the war, life went on in the North. College students could still stay in college right. and graduate. They didn't have to be drafted. So the South wasn't like that. Because of their small population, because the war was being fought on their home soil, it was all-encompassing. Um, by 1871, there are 74 national cemeteries dedicated to Civil War veterans. Uh, 300, over 300,000 Union soldiers are buried in those cemeteries by 1871. How many Confederates were buried there? Well, they don't get to get buried Zero. There. Okay. Right? Zero. So zero Confederate dead are being honored in any national cemeteries. 40%, and here's a number that a lot of people don't realize either, 40% of the dead on the Civil War are never identified. There is, they don't, people, you, people just didn't come home, right? There was no way to notify people at deaths. The only way you knew that someone died is if you, had a, you saw a list in the newspaper, and even then you may not know. So the South is dealing with a huge loss of life. You're dealing with uh, the loss of slaves. And I think we also need to talk about what slavery is to the South, because slavery is a two-part thing. Uh, and so many times we look at it as a labor system, and it's absolutely that, but it's also a social system, right? So if you own something, like I own a dog, I love my dog, but I own a dog. In order for me to own that dog, uh, I must have a fundamental belief, and that is I am better than my dog. I am more important than my dog, that my dog is less than. Right. And so in order for a whole society... Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's what... Uh... You know the cornerstone speech. Exactly. He says he says that the uh, was it Stevens, Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederacy, he says that right at the beginning of the war, that our that the war is about you know a mistake that was made. Uh, he doesn't say by Jefferson, but it is by, that you know the statement that all men are created equal. That we have proven that that's not true, and that the natural state of black people is subjugation and slavery. So I mean that's what the war is about. Right. So when the war is over, you eradicate slavery, kind of. And we could talk about convict leasing and debt peonage and sharecropping mm. to really show that forced labor continues well into the 20th century. Right. Um, that the, the bondage does not end. But you can't get rid of the idea that those people, quote, air quotes I'm using, are less than us. They're not the same. Even though slavery may have be gone, be gone. Those 3.5 million African-Americans, those former slaves, are not my equal. They should it, not You vote. mean if you're a Southerner. If I'm a Southerner, right. absolutely. Um, and, and also sometimes in the North. Oh, I was surprised to find out that Indiana, the state I was born in, had laws until 
up until the end of the war, I think uh, they changed it in 1866, that prevented immigration by black people in Indiana. And what uh, changed people's mind a lot of times is guys like Swales we talked about last time. They knew, and this, and Lincoln knew this too, and it's, it's one reason he started to advocate for black suffrage at the end of the war, that once these, you know, black soldiers had served, the, Nor- the Northern people were aware of that. They had done like Swales, and they had been wounded in combat. Very hard then to say, oh, you can't come to my state. Right. And hard to say, oh, you can't vote. You shed blood, you wear the blue uniform. And of course, Frederick Douglass had predicted that. And it did change somewhat. Somewhat. Obviously, there's still a lot of racism, but it did change attitudes. But in the South, they're just going to feel victimized. Right. And the idea that all of a sudden a person who's working my cotton field is now going to be my equal um, because some amendment was passed or something. Be able to vote. Right. And that's just... For a judge or a sheriff. Um, So the... The reason I bring this up is twofold. Number one... You're a Southern apologist, obviously. Exactly. (laughs) I think that you need to put yourself in a Southern perspective to understand Reconstruction, how the Southerners felt. Uh, They were completely decimated by the war. Cities were destroyed. Almost every major battle was fought in your uh, part of the country. Uh, And disproportionately, you suffered much more in terms of the number of dead and wounded. And then on top of that, you're going to lose the primary system of labor, and you're also losing the social system, which all that is based on. Um, It is a great reset of a whole region of the country that I don't think people understand and then appreciate how difficult Reconstruction is going to be. I think you set that up, and I think that's a very important thing to do. Um, And... You know, anytime this is brought up in a modern context, people say, well, you're doing whataboutism or you're deflecting. And I think telling the truth about circumstances is not deflecting and it's not excusing. It's looking at things as they were. You and I aren't saying, well, the the Southerner should have never had that attitude anyhow. I mean, Alexander Stevens was wrong and guys like Swales proved he was wrong, you know, Uh, but... That's what it was. And you have to look at things the way they were uh, to understand. I know at my, uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s and graduated college in the 70s. I looked at my dad's generation, as a whole bunch of people did. You know, the, uh, the young people were pro-civil rights, anti-Vietnam. And it was like, you know, we we're looking at that generation. And now I think back at it as, yeah, you guys were really lazy. All you did was get us out of the Great Depression and then make the world safe for democracy. In the meantime, you should have fixed this, this, X, Y, and Z. And of course, you can't do it. You have to look at the context of the times for anything, even to appreciate the bravery of a guy like Swales. Right. You have to know what he was up against. So I think this is a, this is a really good discussion. The civil rights movement, when we look back on the 50s and 60s, and obviously that does not solve the problem, uh, the truth is the civil rights movement should have been fought in the 1870s and 1880s. Right. Um, because it wasn't fought, it had to be fought again. Right. Um, but when you look at the huge mountain that had to be climbed, um, I, I don't know if it was possible to climb that mountain. And I don't know if the government of 1870 had the ability, uh, the levers to pull, 
to reach out in a long extended period of time to make sure that mountain was climbed. So if we if we go to 1875, I mean 1865, um, Lincoln has a pretty simple plan for reconstruction. He wants to bring the states back into the Union fairly quickly. And but he also understands that we need to protect the rights of the freed slaves. We need to have uh, slavery needs to be eradicated in the Constitution. Um, there needs to be the right to vote. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau or some like structure has to be created to reach out and make sure that after the, that that freed slaves are going to be protected. A huge part of this is going to be property. Um, what is going to be the key to getting freedmen out of the bondage of slavery and lift them to be on the path to equality? Um, land. Land is going to do that. If they can be independent of the racist structure in the South, and they can grow their own crops and sustain their own properties. And what, 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 did, what would slaves know about? They would know about the land. They right. were, you know, they weren't allowed to get educations. They weren't allowed, in most cases, to learn how to read or write. So, but what were they allowed to do? Well, you know, they could have certainly a, a vegetable patch to feed themselves and feed the plant. They worked on the fields. They knew the land, and that's something that they, well, actually, they did do and sharecropping. But of course, their profits were taken away from. But but that's what they needed. They needed a piece of land. William Tecumseh Sherman issued Field Order 15, which is famous, the 40 acres and a mule. Okay. Um, and all confiscated land was to go to slaves, ex-slaves. We're going to break up these plantations. Right, going to break up these plantations. And uh, the, the Union Army had God knows how many animals they didn't need anymore. And they were going to divide those animals up and as um, working animals for these freed slaves. And where this was attempted, it works. Um, we have places in South Carolina where uh, black communities form, they're prosperous, um, they are working, they're working the land, and it seems to be happening. Lincoln's assassinated. Lincoln's assassination is one of the great what-ifs of all of this. Um, when Lincoln is killed, Democrat Andrew Johnson from Tennessee is going to become president. Now, the only reason that Andrew Johnson is even on the ticket um, was Lincoln saw it as a olive branch of the South, that having a Southerner on the ticket is, and a Democrat on the ticket is going to help bring us all together after the war, and that will somehow be a good thing. Uh, he would never have been appointed. I mean, he had never been vice president if they had thought Lincoln was going to be shot and killed. When... Andrew Johnson becomes president. Um, I think Frederick Douglass says it best. Whatever this man is, he's no friend of our race. Frederick Douglass is probably one of the most famous runaway slaves of the civil pre-Civil War era, who writes many books, becomes very prominent. Um, if you have a chance to read Frederick Douglass or read his speeches, you really should. Uh, Andrew Johnson was a racist. And, and, and Frederick Douglass had become a friend of Lincoln at right. this point. Even though Frederick Douglass recognized that Lincoln at first wasn't an abolitionist, wasn't committed to that. But by the end of the Civil War, there was going to be an abolition of slavery. And, and uh, uh, Douglass and Lincoln were actually on a first-name basis. Well, were that? I knew yeah. they were close. I didn't know they were on a first. Lincoln called them, referred to him as my friend Douglass. Okay. So. 
Uh, Andrew Johnson will not. No, okay. no. Johnson is... Johnson's a racist. Yes. Um, he hates slavery. Nice. <sighs> but the reason he hates slavery is because he hates rich white people in the South. Uh, Andrew Johnson mm-hmm. was from Tennessee. He grew up in the mountains of Tennessee. And there was a really... A lot of people don't know this. A really split in Tennessee between the eastern and western part of the state. If you grew up in the mountainous part of the state, many people from the western part of the state and the mountains came north to fight because they hated slavery, not so much because they were fighting for the abolition of African-Americans, but they hated the aristocracy, the white aristocracy that was locking them out of what they saw. Tennessee units that fought for the North, like the first U.S. Tennessee volunteers. And that's the region that Andrew Johnson comes from. So Andrew Johnson is no friend of the freed slave or the black man, but he certainly hates the white aristocracy. Um, he issues a blanket pardon in for Southerners to a line. Uh, and basically he draws a line. And I, I forget the, the, the amount of wealth that you had to have. But if you were below a certain line, you're pardoned, go back and do whatever you do. If you were above a certain line of wealth, you had to come to him personally and ask for a pardon. Right? <laughs> so I didn't know that. Yeah. So this was sort of his... And it kiss his butt. Exactly. You need to come and kiss the emperor's ring, and then who will grant you a pardon? But part of this also is what you do for Johnson. What about my land? The Southerners are saying, you know, this was my land. I own this land. I have uh, records that indicate I own this land. And now it's been broken up and given to all these ex-slaves. And this is my property, and that's not right. Well... Andrew Johnson, if nothing else, was a constitutionalist. Um, matter of fact, when he was buried, he was buried with the Constitution under his head as a pillow. Okay. And the idea of property rights are sacred in the Constitution, yeah. sacred. And that property has to go back to the original owners. As if this weren't an extenuating circumstance that the person working your property had been owned and kidnapped, that they have some sort of moral right to work this land. Well, Andrew Johnson comes in and his 40 acres and a mules disappears. And this is the second real huge hit to any chance that freed slaves are going to elevate to any meaningful level in the South. And and we don't know what Lincoln would have done because he wasn't alive at this time. Lincoln, if you read the second inaugural address, was, was... characterizing slavery as America's original sin and evil which required American blood to be shed to get rid of it. Every drop of blood shed by the lash should be paid for with a drop of blood shed on the battlefield. Yeah, I think. Drawn by the sword or something. Right. Right. And and so I'm going to go out on a limb and say Lincoln doesn't he would have promoted some ownership for these newly freed slaves. He would have tried to help these people. And Johnson doesn't. He's not interested in it. And the there was a conference held, and I think, uh, I know Sherman was there. I want to say Grant was there as well. And they gathered some prominent African-Americans together after the war to ask them, what do you need? And their response wasn't give us land. Their response was let us work land and let us buy it. You know, so their response was to work the land until we have the revenue to buy the land and we'll purchase the land. But they needed land. When the land is taken... They wanted a chance. They wanted a chance. See, that's... uh, 
when that is taken away from them, what do they have left? Well, they have sharecropping, which is in many ways almost worse than slavery in some way, because now you're real expendable, at least as a slave. You had some value because you were valuable and someone quote unquote owns you. And if I die, if I run away, the master is going to lose value. As a sharecropper, what value do I have to the person who owns the property? If I die, who, why does the person who owns the property care? They really don't. The next person can come in and fill my slot. In essence, I'm a slave for rent. Right. Um, and in many ways, sharecropping is almost a step backwards. I don't want to say it is because freedom and the ability to be free, at least in a little bit, is extremely valuable. But my point well, is, and the sons and daughters of sharecroppers will eventually move north. There'll be the yes. migration, which they couldn't have done, obviously, under right. slavery. But yeah, and, and the, you should explain what sharecropping was. Well, yeah, sharecropping is the idea that um, I own a thousand acres of land. I can't work it all myself, so I'm going to split my land up into hundred acre plots, and I'm going to hire farmers to come in and work it. And then and they, they can live on the land. They can live on the land. And when, uh, when the crop time, when it comes time to reap, uh, we are going to split the crop. Uh, you're going to have some. I'm going to have some. But as the owner, I get to tell you how much you're going to have. Right. And it's probably going and to If you be, don't like it, find another place right. to share crop. And it's probably going to be just enough just to keep you alive and to keep you coming back. And it's going to be perpetual debt. You're never going to be able to get yourself out of debt. Both poor whites and poor blacks are sharecroppers, um, but overwhelmingly, it's going to be something that freed slaves are going to be to doing as well. And again, what what did they know how to do? Work the land. Or work the land, and so that's the way they were used. So in essence, they were shackled yet again for for generations, and then on top of that, so let, if we go to reconstruction for at least another hundred years, right? So. And we're not. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the policies of reconstruction. But let's just suffice to say that by the 1870s, the North is getting fatigued. Um, this idea that we are going to have a constant military presence in the South to make sure that these policies are being carried out. The North is getting tired of this. And you can see this happening in many different avenues in politics. You, know, you look at the Vietnam War. You look at the war in Iraq. Long engagements and difficult struggles. People get fatigued. And the support of that gets fatigued, and eventually you just want it to be over. And, and, and it's and it is easier to get fatigued when you don't feel like you have a big stake in the other person's cause for whatever reason. Right. And Vietnam's halfway around the world, as it was pointed out over and over again, and so forth. And the fact is that the people who are most persecuted in the South under Reconstruction. Are different color than most of the people in the north so it is easier to get fatigued that's the way it worked right so by 1877 uh, a compromise is reached because of an electoral college dispute uh, Hayes becomes president and northern troops our Union troops are eventually completely pulled out of the south and now the freed man is there he doesn't own property he Jim Crow is M Jim Crow laws segregation laws are in effect um, laws are written to keep him from voting. Uh, laws are written to keep him from getting educated. And he is tied to the land that he doesn't own. And trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps 
is is laughable. Um, you are right that children eventually are going to be able to children and grandchildren when opportunities arise. World War One, I, I think, was the right. first big one. Uh, you, the Great Migration during World War One, uh, going to northern cities. Uh, World War Two is going to offer another one of those things. But without those, there's really little opportunity for them to move forward. I, I just want to interject something. When I was a kid, I, I lived in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I mentioned this before. But uh, the Department of Defense had... Harry Truman had desegregated the army in 1948. And he could do that because he was commander-in-chief. He didn't have to wait for anything. Right. He's the boss. And so I went to school with black kids and Asian kids and Hispanic kids. And I was surprised to find at Fayetteville, the town outside of Fort Bragg, these, uh, the black kids, for sure, they couldn't go to a restaurant. They could go to a movie theater at certain times and sit at certain places. It was just all kind of... So, yeah, I'm getting to be an old guy. But it's not like this system is ancient that we're talking about. When I lived in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and later in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, you would have to, you, it would be proper to characterize the system around uh, uh, these bases as apartheid. It really oh, yeah, would be. A, you had to separate yeah. the races. They were, you know, you had poll taxes and literacy tests to keep black people from voting. It's not that long ago. That's something, too, that, that, you know, my kids, when I used to teach us, well, slavery was a long time ago. Yeah, but its effects lingered along, still linger. Right. I was doing some research, um, and from, 19, from 1877, which was the date of end of Reconstruction in 1966, the South had exactly one conviction of a white man for killing a black man. Um, so the idea that you could— So the, the white people were— they didn't commit murders. No, they did. Murder. It was a very clean time. <laughs> yeah. They had one. Well, was it four? Um, he killed 10 black guys. Uh, so that was, was a mass murder. Right. This, the, he was holding people actually in debt peonage, basically as slaves on his property. There was going to be a federal investigation. He and the other gentlemen that were doing this thought the only way to keep these people quiet is to kill them all. So they killed all 10 of them, and eventually one of the bodies floats up, and a boy finds it along the river. But you had, how, what does it take to get convicted of? Is that, this is a true case. I didn't even know yeah, about this, this case. True case. And, and, and that's the only, and did he get convicted? He got convicted. All right. So the, the only way to get convicted of killing an African-American was, mass murder. was to kill at least 10. <laughs> right? I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> it's when crazy. you look at the... Now, we're, we're laughing because that's what you do when something's so horrible. Right. It, it, it's, it's the... The picture that you can see that's being painted after the war in well into the 20th century is showing the brutality of the system and is going to explain why civil rights are stalled for almost 100 years until the 50s and 60s when the push comes again to try to have to try to fight the fight. It should have been fought in the 1860s and the 1870s. We lost. It's a huge, great opportunity that right. we lost. And one of the big things that happened in the Reconstruction was was the 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 freed slaves were not allowed to accumulate any wealth. You couldn't go to school. If you went to a school, it was an inferior school. 
if if you went to a school that was provided in some places, you couldn't have gone to the high school. If you went to the high school, like in Little Rock, it was an inferior high school, and you wanted to, you know, uh, it was, certainly wasn't equipped, and the teachers weren't as trained as they were in the white school. So an education is generally thought of as a way to get ahead. You couldn't buy a home in an area where your value Red would appreciate lining. redlining you know you you, you nobody give you a mortgage even after world war ii uh and the gi bill and maybe you could, could get a loan still couldn't buy one in an area where it would appreciate and add value so this this it impoverished black people and one thing i if if you are a capitalist you don't want people impoverished if you're a real capitalist you want people to be able to get ahead so they become ambitious and they accumulate wealth and they start their own businesses and they're able to buy something from your business. So uh, it is a way of you know, the old phrase of cutting off your nose to spite your face. We're going to be really, really ugly to these people that we feel it's okay to be ugly to. We're going to prevent them from accumulating uh, getting an education and accumulating wealth. And what's that going to do? Well, it makes the South the poorest area of the whole damn country. Right. So You're they're removing people from the economy. Yeah. In the end, the Reconstruction is going to be this great what if. Uh, sometimes historians will call it a moment in the sun, uh, that right after the wars there was this possibility that African-Americans were given property. Uh, you're going to see African-Americans getting the right to vote electing black officials, electing black people to Congress, and then this moment in the sun ends right. because of fatigue, and re then rede uh, redemption governments come back, uh, were controlled by white Democrats, and clamp that shut. And, and just to follow the story of Stephen Swales, he moved down south after he served in the 54th Massachusetts. He worked for the Freedmen's Bureau, he started his move to a small town called King Street, South Carolina, became the mayor, started his own newspaper, ran for office, and was elected to the South Carolina State Senate. He served as president pro temp there. He became an elector for the state of South Carolina. When offered the opportunity, the thing that scared white Southerners wasn't that blacks couldn't do these things. It was they could. Right. That's what was scary. And you go back to the racial theory that Alexander Stevens, it proved it wrong. Just like Stephen Swale's service in the Civil War proved that black people could be good soldiers, his service in Reconstruction proved they could be good civilian leaders. But it was not to be allowed. Great place to end that podcast. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Reach out to us at History Politics and Beer at Gmail. You can catch us on Twitter or Facebook, and we look forward to seeing you soon.